From the Valley Podcast with your host, Tim Wilshere. Yeah, welcome to From the Valley Podcast. I'm your host, uh, Tim Wilshere. This is episode 32. It's a Monday morning, the 18th of March, 2019. And uh, today we've got a very special guest with us. Uh, his name's Brian Moss from Moneybox Financial Planning. Welcome along to the podcast, Brian. Thank you for having me, Tim. Pleasure to be here. And uh, I guess before we get started, I guess uh, you had a bit of a message that you'd like to sort of uh, uh, deliver, I guess, to all our listeners. And uh... Yeah, look, I mean, I think it, it's, it's just prudent that, you know, uh, given the events that happened in Christchurch uh, last Friday, that we just... Pay our respects to the to the victims of the um, attack in Christchurch and their families, and um, you know basically everyone that was affected by the um, you know terrible events that did unfold on on, on Friday. Um, you know my my uh, wife's parents live in Auckland, so obviously not not close to Christchurch, but I know it um, certainly uh, had an impact on them. Um, you know they they're of the uh, Muslim faith, so you know certainly you know the events that unfolded uh, were um, you know the Worst magnitude, so yeah, we sort of good opportunity just to pay our respects and you know, send our thoughts and best wishes and uh, to everyone in uh, Christchurch who's been uh, impacted by the events on Friday. Yeah, great message, Brian. Um, it's it's certainly a tragedy when uh, this occurs. It's something you don't expect to happen, I guess, in our part of the world, uh, in um, you know New Zealand. Uh, lovely, lovely place, and it's it's certainly a shame that. Um, that this this has happened to, to them and uh, the magnitude of, of of it as well is is really um, it's distressing eye opening as well. Yeah. Um, so just want to pay our respects to our brothers and sisters uh, over in New Zealand and I think um, you know the prime minister has done a, a very good job at responding to that and and said the right things as well. Um, I guess um, yeah. So that's. That's uh, just happened uh, on Friday the fifteenth. Um, yeah, so yeah, so Brian, a bit about the podcast. You probably listened to a couple of the episodes that we've done. Um, I guess what I can say is uh, what we'd like to sort of do is the focus will be a bit on you and your sort of uh, ideas, journey, and that type of thing today. So, whereabouts uh, were you born and where were you brought up? Okay, so uh, I was born in Cairns. Um, many years ago, um, spent most of my life in Cairns. Uh, we moved to Toowoomba when I was quite young, and we were there for a, for a couple of years. Then we uh, came back to Cairns. So probably in the, the first seventeen or eighteen years of my life, probably you know, maybe fourteen or fifteen years of that was spent in Cairns. Um, and you know, Cairns back in the day was a you know, effectively a, a, a sleepy little town. Um, wasn't much going on, but it was, it was, a, it was a good place to grow up. Um, but uh, certainly when I uh, go back and visit it now, the, the level of development and the number of people there, it's, um, it just blows my mind how quickly um, Cairns has grown. And I suppose, like a lot of places around Australia and probably around the world, the infrastructure does struggle to uh, you know, deal with influx of people. But um, by and large, I think um, you know, Cairns is, is sort of okay on the infrastructure perspective, but it was you know, different different place completely to, to where I grew up. Yeah, so I mean, very hot uh, part of the world. Very, you know, got the tropical climate. Um, how did you sort of handle that as a as a as a child growing up? Uh, obviously, you're probably used to it. You're born that with that. But, uh... 
Yeah, used to it probably one way to describe it. I don't know if you can necessarily always be used to the, the humidity, especially. Um, but look, um, you know, when I was growing up, I spent a lot of time swimming, so I suppose in that really hot part of the afternoon, you'd be in the pool, so that, that wouldn't be that bad. Um, but I do vividly remember the daylight saving tri- trial in 92 or 93. We didn't have air conditioning, and had a little pedestal fan. And I just you know, remember distinctly how it was just that little bit hotter for that little bit later at night. Um, and it was just really, really difficult to, you know, you know, to get to sleep and things like that until a cool change came through. Um, but then I moved to um, moved to Canberra um, for uni, and all of a sudden you you realise that daylight saving, especially in a place like Canberra, is fantastic mm. because of the climate down there, and it's light until seven, seven thirty, eight o'clock at night. So, you know, I don't want this to be a pro or, or, or negative daylight saving debate, but just that's my vivid remember of, uh, memory of Cairns is uh, how oppressive it was during daylight saving trial. Yeah, so it was probably a once-off trial. That I'm, I'm, I don't know if we'll see it again in our state for a, in our lifetime. Even it's just one of those things, I guess. Uh, daylight savings. Uh, but yeah, Canberra. So you moved down there. Uh, was it the main motivation? Obviously, you wanted to go somewhere to, to study, uh, to do university, and that you. Why did you choose Canberra? Look, I, I think I chose Canberra just because it was something different, and you know, university is all about. You know, trying something a little bit different. So I thought, you know, uh, young enough, I'd you know, give it a go and, uh, and 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 see how it all worked out. I suppose uh, that first winter in Canberra nearly killed me. I was um, grossly uh, uh, underprepared. Is probably the best way to put it for the you know for the freezing cold temperatures there. You know, when you wake up and it's minus six, it's not really conducive to doing anything other than sleeping in, especially when you're not used to it. Um, but I adapted like 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 you have to. Um, but um, yeah, look. You, going to Canberra I could have went to Brisbane but I just decided that uh, you know Canberra as something a little bit different for you just just made sense for me in that part of my life um, certainly don't regret it um, but I uh, did nearly throw in the towel in uh, so that, that that first winter was um, yeah just blew my mind how cold Canberra does actually get and in fact you know, this is a bit of a segue you might remember there was a, a rugby league game down in Canberra Raiders playing I think it might have been the Tigers when it snowed this is years Jeez, ago yep, so uh, me and my mates were at that game so um, yeah that was um, mind blowing as well but they did give us some free meat pies so that made it all worthwhile <laughs> free meat pies <laughs> thank you Raiders <laughs> free meat pies there you go but um, and then you obviously you, you finished your sort of university studies you got uh, degree qualified in um, was it economics and arts yeah that's right yep at uh, Australian National University, I'm, I've been there. Um, I've been to Canberra a few years ago. There was a festival on. We went there for a long weekend. Well, sort of a few days and over a weekend, and went up the. I think it was the Telstra Tower. Yep, yep. Yeah, the Black Mountain Tower. I actually, you know, walked about thirty k's in two days, just looking around the place. Yeah, um, it was good. Some good walks around there in Canberra too, but. Um, then obviously you finish university obviously where do you look for work I mean obviously Canberra I think you said you got a job there initially that's right yes yeah. so I, I you know, got a job with the Commonwealth Bank out of uni strange enough I was also offered a job at the ATO which um, I, I didn't take but looking at um, you know, knowing what I know now about the, the generous um, superannuation scheme that uh, the public servants had at the time maybe that wasn't a good move I don't know um, but no so I took a job with uh, CBA in Canberra um, and although I found Canberra a great place to study, um, wasn't really the best place to work. Um, mainly because you know when it was freezing cold and you were studying, you just sleep in and maybe miss a lecture or go later on the day. You can't do that when you're working. <laughs> so I, um, you know, in inverted commas, survived about eighteen months of working there. And then I thought it was 
time to head back home or back home at least at least to Queensland. Uh, so I was originally looking for some work in Brisbane and uh, w- w- when I was in Brisbane interviewing an opportunity came up um, with a firm in Gladstone. Um, that didn't quite suit me but they then uh, passed my details on to um, a firm in Rockhampton um, and then I flew up to Rockhampton, met the business owner and um, decided once again, you know, why not effectively just to go up there and uh, and give it a go. So I moved up to Rocky in 2001 and we were there until about 2007. So during that time, which is uh, between, you know, 12 and 18 years, or 12 and 17 years ago, I guess, uh, Rockhampton, what was it like to live uh, in Rockhampton? I remember actually in, in the year 2000 actually flying to Rockhampton to visit a particular client uh, yeah. uh, that Paul McHenry sent me along. I was only, you know, been working at Confidential Tax and Business two months um, and he flew me just as GST was coming in to, <laughs> to basically help set up um, uh, still clients now. Um, uh, their uh, MyOB system at the time. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, my, my memory of Rockhampton is, you know, I um, went grocery shopping, or rather tried to go grocery shopping on a Sunday. He's mm-hmm. down in Canberra. Things are open seven days a week. Yeah. Rock up to uh, Woolies in Allenstown on Sunday morning closed and it just blew my mind that you know all, all these shops weren't open on a Sunday so that was a bit of an eye-opener to the differences between the nation's capital and a regional town yep. um, so I eventually got used to that and you know I, I believe now the shops are open in uh, Rocky seven days a week which probably makes it easier for a lot of people but it certainly wasn't back in the day but look Rocky was a good place um, a good place to get involved in things so I I've always done a bit of swimming, so I was doing some swimming up there and then got introduced to triathlons. And there was a core group of us that would regularly train together and socialise together. And um, that was, you know, Rocky was a great spot for that. So, you know, we'd, um, you know, finish our sessions on Friday night and then we'd go to the pub for some pizzas and uh, dinner and maybe a couple of drinks as well. It was just, you know, it was a really good environment just to, you know, be social and, and, and be active. And in fact, I think you'll find that Rockhampton does have a, you know, pretty good, um, you know, track record in terms of, um, you know, developing, um, you know, sporting superstars. There's a couple of little towns like that. Wagga is probably another one, but, you know, Rocky's also got some, some sporting super, superstars because just, you know, it's just a good place. You know, the, the weather is pretty kind to you most of the time. It gets a bit hot, but certainly not as humid as Cairns. Um, so if you want to get out there and do those sporting activities, you can, you can certainly do that. Yeah, so definitely, you've always sort of growing up. You've always been into sport as well, did you? But a lot of the fitness type sports. But did you get involved in sort of you know things like uh, rugby league or AFL or anything like that? Growing up, soccer. Yeah, look, I, basketball. I, when I went to uni, I played. Uh, you know, because we had a um, you know, a, so I lived on campus, so we had a like a um, inter campus sort of um, competition. Um, so I did a little bit of rugby league and uh, a little bit of. Aussie rules um, there um, certainly wasn't the best at either of those. Um, <laughs> may have occasionally forgotten that you know in Aussie rules you can't push people in the back when you're going for a mark or trying to defend a mark, but that's okay. <laughs> so, yeah, but, I mean the different styles of game. You can easily, I, I could see how you could easily, you know, you're, you're allowed to get away pushing people in the back, playing rugby league, trying to make a tackle. Yeah. But uh, come to the AFL, you got to wrap your arms around them and bloody lay into them to uh, get a tackle. Absolutely, but I, you know, in my very limited experience of both of those, you know, both of those sports, I, I definitely enjoyed playing Aussie Rules more than uh, than, than rugby league. It was a it was a really fun game to play. Mm. Yeah, definitely some fun games. So, 
So Rockhampton for five or six years. I think you said you, you met uh, your wife there. Is that right? Or? That's right. Yep. Yeah, so I met Shakira up in um, up in Rocky. So um, as dodgy as this sounds, it doesn't come. It shouldn't be as dodgy. But, but, I, <laughs> but I, I met her. At, I met her at Rockhampton Girls Grammar School. She was a teacher. Um, yep. But um, my boss at the time was on the board of the Rockhampton Girls Grammar School, and they were, were doing a um, sort of a, a, a week of. Business studies, I, I, I suppose, is, is effectively the, the best way to put them. That I have outside um, professionals like myself would come in and um, help the girls in, you know, in part of this competition, and that's where, where I uh, met my wife. Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> and then the move to Brisbane. So, what ended up ultimately making you uh, make the the move? You worked at um, the Rock Building Society. Yeah, the good old rock, yep. Uh, maybe, the, was it Suncorp, Suncorp as, as well? well? Yep, that's right. Yep, yep. So had, had, had a couple of different roles in, in, in Rocky. But look, we had our son up there in 2006, so Jasper. Um, and then it was really just, my, my wife had spent a fair bit of her life, not a, not a whole life, but a fair bit of her life in Rocky. And um, she, I suppose, um, wanted to um, try somewhere else. So opportunity came up with uh, John and Gary from Money Mentors in Brisbane. And Money Mentors had a long relationship with uh, confidential tax and business services. Um, so that opportunity came up, and it, it seemed like a uh, seemed like a pretty good thing for us. Um, yeah, so we decided to make the move down. Yeah, so yeah, Money Mentors. I remember uh, John Petralia, Gary Miller. You're both uh, excellent financial planners in their own right. Um, Definitely. And uh, we had affiliation with them since about 2004. Five, I think 2005 is uh, when we first sort of met uh, John and Gary uh, and then you came in as this, I guess the uh, senior financial planner that's right yeah um, yep, yep. 2007 yeah. I believe yep that's right and uh, so you were there and um, with them for about four or so years I think it was that's right so look the the, the, the timing of the move down um, ultimately w- 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 was horrendous um, we moved down, uh, I think it might have been February or March 2007. Had a couple of good months with uh, John and Gary until June 2007 when the GFC started to rear its ugly head. Uh, so most of my time with um, John and Gary coincided with the global meltdown of shares, managed funds and in and, and global economies during the GFC. Uh, then um, uh, if we sort of fast forward, John and Gary then... Uh, decided to sell the business to a to a national firm. I, I went along to that business, and then um, after a couple of years, I decided that um, you know it was time to set my own business up, which which was uh, Moneybox. Yeah, no. So a great journey to get to that point, and um, and as you said, GFC was a tough time uh, for lots of different types of businesses, and certainly financial planners more so affected. You know, probably more so affected than ever before, but. Um, getting through that obviously what sort of strategies I guess were employed by the business at the time to sort of counteract um, I guess you know the fact that your know, everyday person didn't want to you know associate with financial planners as much yeah I, I think a lot of it was just communication and being available so uh, if you know, someone called you'd have to uh, not, not so much had to but you, you obviously did the right thing brought them in spoke to them about you know, the impact on the portfolio the, the importance of things like diversification um, and you know, by the time 
you know, markets might have moved, you know, sometimes it's a little bit too late to act. So it's just a matter of saying, well, look, the assets you've got are good quality. There's not, no reason why you need to sell them. But it was also a very irrational time as well. Like I remember one Friday I was out taking my son to the Science Centre because he, he loved going there. And I had a call from a client because US markets have fallen by 10% in a day. So, you know, that, that, that sort of extreme volatility, which... You know, um, you know, realistically, many of us had never really experienced before, and we certainly don't want to experience it again. It was just there's just this irrational fear going through, um, you know, going through all markets, and you know, the the the, the first I think that really the 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 GFC first impacted Australia probably December two thousand and seven when Centro, um, who's a property uh, manager or a property owner, came out and said, "Look, we've got all this long term debt. Turns out it's short term. We can't refinance it." So that was really the the sort of the trigger for the Australian markets to start, um, you know, they start having a, having a bit of a meltdown. But going back to your original question, look, I think the, the most important thing whenever there is volatility is just being available. You know, mm. um, it's pointless. You know, when when markets are volatile, not answering your phone, not responding to emails, you, you need to be there for your clients. That's what they pay you for. And we get lots of sources of different information from you know, fund managers, research houses, etc. Um, so trying to um, go through that and um, you know, break it down in a way that um, you know, clients can understand and accept what's going on mm. um, is of critical importance. Mm. And back back when you sort of were working there, uh, was was life insurance? That is that because that one I'll sort of think of uh, yourself. I think of life insurance as being a fairly one of your strong suits, yep. is what comes across to me. Uh, is that something you've always been interested in, or when did you first sort of get into being a specialist in this area? Look, I, I think I really started focusing a bit on life insurance after my wife and I had our son, um, because it's that sort of point in time where you know when you when you're single or you're married, but you don't have don't have financial dependence, you don't really think about it. Um, but then all of a sudden you got a you got a child, and you think to yourself, well, hang on, if something happens to me, what sort of lifestyle do I want to leave leave for my wife? And my son, do I want to be in a situation where she needs to go back to work the day after the funeral to, you know, put, to um, put bread on the table, or do I want to be in a situation where there's funds available for her so that if she wants to take six months off or twelve months off or two years off, she's got that flexibility. So it was really that the wake-up call was was, was having a child. Um, and look, while I'm a you know, big believer in in life insurance, I also am also definitely of the view that there comes a point in time where you don't need it as well. So I don't advocate people having life insurance that they don't need. It's a matter of keeping the cover appropriate to you and your circumstances. And the one thing I'd, I'd, I'd certainly say to anyone that's contemplating is, you know, try and get your insurance when you're young because if you leave it too late, yes, you might save on premiums, but then, of course, you might have some health issues, so there might be loadings, there might be exclusions. Um, so getting it while you're young and healthy and, and, you know, having it set up properly and having it for the long term is is definitely the, the, the smarter option, but also seeking advice about it too because, you know, there's differences between policies and some of the differences are major. Yeah, and... Uh, I guess um, we'll come, might come back to, to more discussion about insurances, but I guess I wanted to sort of uh, touch base with you know going out on your own. That must have been a big step in 2011. We we're here at CTBS to support that move in a way, but um, and obviously we referred you some some clients uh, over the course of time uh, to MoneyBox. Um, tell me when did you decide to make the decision to to go out on your own, and uh, what did you I guess, learn in the early going. Yeah, well, one of the attractions originally of of coming down to Brisbane and joining Money Mentors was, you know, um, John and Gary and myself had talked about perhaps me buying into the business at some point in time. 
but then, as we spoke earlier, the the GFC sort of came up, and I think it, you know, from their perspective, the their best option was a full sale of business rather than a partial sale to myself, and I completely understand that. So it was really, um, you know, going for that, you know, yeah, effectively when I was with John and Gary at Money Mentors, you know, they effectively treated me as part of the business, not, not necessarily as an employee. So I always felt I was just about self-employed. So when they sold the business and it went to a national organisation and, you know, there was the, the sort of, you know, it's much more uh, micromanaging, I suppose. And, you know, the, the, the business itself and the experience was good, but it, that just didn't really gel with me. Um, I, I, you know, prefer to do things that, you know, suit myself and, and, and my clients. But, um, you know, that was, I suppose, the, the, the trigger for me to say, well, hang on, maybe now is the time to consider going self-employed. And once again, markets weren't behaving at that time either. But, you know, my wife and I decided, well, what were our options? We either, you know, bite the bullet and become self-employed then, um, or we wait a few years and then do it. But who's to say that when we decide to do it down the track that markets wouldn't be misbehaving then as well? So it really just came down to an opportunity came up and I thought this opportunity suits me and suits the family. Um, so we decided it was, it was, it was time to go, so, so to speak. Yeah, so definitely a big move. And uh, obviously, um, you know, you're obviously still standing, so obviously um, you obviously still uh, got things going quite well. But... What what have you seen? Uh, I guess change in, in more recent years uh, when it comes to the business. Is it? I guess from you know from the, what I can see is there's there's such a uh, an increase in um, financial requirements. I mean not financial requirements, um, educational requirements to you know stay abreast of being qualified um, to be able to to give financial advice. That seems to be forever. Changing, we've seen a lot of this uh, change in self-managed super fund space as well. Uh, what do you think about the educational requirements of you know keeping up to date your CPD for being a financial planner and all the, I guess the forms that you have to sort of go through and and hoops that you got to jump through? Yeah, look, the, probably the, the the first thing I'd say is that you know the educational requirements or uplifting educational requirements for a financial planner has been spoken about probably since I first joined the industry back in two thousand two thousand and one. Um, you know, and then proposals would be made, then they'd be defeated, and then proposals be made, and then they'd be defeated again. And you just sit there and you think to yourself, look, you know, if we want to be looked at in a similar vein to an accountant or a lawyer, the education requirements need to be similar to an accountant and a lawyer. So it, it was really, really disappointing over the last number of years where, you know, the industry couldn't get their act together to voluntarily uplift education requirements and of course what we know now is that you know government has taken that um, out of the hands of the um, industry and they've dictated some additional requirements that need to you know that they need to be met and that those initially started first of january this year so you know that, that is often the problem where you've got self-regulation doesn't work and then government imposed regulation might be a little bit more stringent than um than what's required but you know that's it's it's the downside of not getting you know the industry not getting their act together. So it was always disappointing though that the education requirements weren't tougher. In terms of you know CPD points, um, probably similar to yourself. You know we need to meet you know forty hours of CPD training a year. Mm. Um, some of those requirements are getting a little bit um, or they're, they're changing a bit because you used to be able to do a lot of that via online study, whereas now um, there needs to be a, I believe a component which is some sort of face to face. CPD training, so that that's definitely one uh, one impact. And then, in addition to that, there's the financial advisors exam that every financial planner needs to have passed by. What I, I think by 
1st of January 2021 or thereabouts. So that's causing a lot of um, angst in the industry. So for advisors that may not necessarily have their degree qualifications, they need to uplift their qualifications and they also need to pass this uh, financial advisor exam. So um, despite the fact that we all know about the financial advisor exam, there's still a lot of detail missing about what's going to be required, but um, apparently there's going to be a fair bit of on the corporation's law. Um, so it's just a matter of one of those things, you know, we just need to roll with it and, 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 and do it and, you know, complaining about it's not going to get it done. So my, mm-hmm. my, my personal view, you know, I, I did this a couple of years ago with a course that I did where they were, they were talking about some of the additional education requirements, so I decided, well, rather than wait, I'd just get in and I, I did my... Uh, fellow chartered financial practitioners course by the um, by the um, Association of Financial Advisors because that was spoken about as something that may be mm. mandatory and I thought again rather than wait for that I'll just get in there and get that done. Turns out it, it you know it, it was it's no longer mandatory but still I'm glad I did it. But it's certainly going to be the the one constant change in uh, financial advice over the next few years is regulation and education and you know. Don't complain about it. Just do. You just deal with it. Deal with it and do it. Eh? <laughs> well, exactly. Because yeah. you, you, I mean, as I said, you know, there's been too many cases of you know the regulations being watered down, etc. But in the current environment, after the Royal Commission, there's no way in the world that's going to happen. Um, so it's just a matter of you know, you know giving the best advice you can to the, to the client, and also out of hours, you know, doing the extra study that's going to be required to meet the educational requirements. Yeah. Okay. So that's. Certainly going to be big, big for the industry going forward. And there's lots of industries that are professionals that way. Regulation, you know, you, you've got to stay on top of it. And uh, this is a prime example. Um, going back to uh, life insurance, um, I guess um, you, obviously being a specialist in air, this area, um, you know, to me, it's certainly very important to have all the different types of insurance. What are the best types of policies that uh, Let's say it's a you, you, typical sort of client who's who's Generation Y like us. Um, they're working. What type of policies do they should they be having? Yeah, well, 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 rather than sort of say what type they should be having, because realistically they should, they should be trying to, probably try to have all the different types of cover. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll just spend just a couple of seconds, just very briefly, going over the different types of cover. Yes. Um, yep. So there's there's their life insurance, which relatively straightforward. Um, pays out a benefit on death or diagnosis of a terminal illness. So the terminal illness benefit for different um, different super funds and different policies can be a 12-month benefit or, or two years. So if you're diagnosed with a terminal illness and your life expectancy is less than 24 months, you might get paid. Um, but again, it's important to be, to be aware of the, the limitations of your policy. There's also the total and permanent disablement uh, or, 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 or TPD. This gets... The TPD is probably the hardest one to understand, and out of all the different types of personal protection, it's probably the one that is going to be the one that is the last to get paid, because when an insurer looks at you, it's like, are you able to ever return to work? And if you're only 30 or 40, ever is another you know, potentially 30, 35 years. So if there's a degree, or if there's a chance that there's going to be some degree of recovery, you may not actually be eligible for a total and permanent disability benefit because the insurer might generally believe that you will uh, that you will recover. Um, a few years ago, I came across a guy. He wasn't a client. He just you know, um, called me one day out of the blue after, after some help. He was battling his, in, his TPD policy for about three years. 
Far um, out. Yeah, so, so it's things like that that unfortunately give the industry a bad name. But on the flip side of the equation, you know, that's why you, you know, people that have you or, or say I've got my life and TP to go for three years super, it's like, that's great, but is that really enough? Do you need to consider your income protection so you've got a replacement source of income if you can't work? Or do you need to just, you know, consider trauma cover or critical illness cover, which pays out if you're you know, diagnosed with cancer or heart attack or stroke or MS, all those sort of diseases? So, you know, claiming on one policy may not necessarily always impact your ability to claim on something else. So it's important just to, to get the advice and to get it structured properly. Um, too often I hear, you know, people say, you know, the most important thing from their insurance is low cost. And I can understand that because the, the last thing you want to see coming out of your bank account or your credit card every month, you have your car insurance, your home insurance, your contents insurance, your life insurance, your income protection, your trauma cover, your TPD. Um, and, you know, people look at it and go, Far out, all I'm doing is working to pay my mortgage, my tax and my insurance. So I absolutely get that you know we need to take cash flow into consideration, but you know it's probably not the most important thing when, you, when you're looking at insurance. You really want to be in a situation where and don't well, don't forget what insurance is. Insurance is all about you know passing the financial implication of an event occurring from yourself to the insurance company, and for that you pay them the premium. Um, but you know getting cover structured appropriately, maybe where possible, and I stress maybe you know, looking at trying to get some of the you know cost through superannuation um, but of course the, on the flip side of having the premiums come out of super it's going to have you're going to have less money at retirement so you know there's heaps of things to consider so you know the the, the the difference in giving advice on you know the life insurance type things that we look at versus something like the home and contents insurance is chalk and cheese mm. because we need to sit down and have a good look at your situation What's your cash flow like? You have debts, you have dependents. Try and then structure something that works for you, but it's not going to break the bank. So mm. there is a whole, whole lot of work involved in it, despite the fact that from a lot of people's perspective, it might, you know, it may look simple. All you're doing is choosing, you know, policy A, but you know, there's actually a lot more that goes into it than that. Mm, definitely, and so that's a very good sort of summary of you know, I guess the, the approaches to insurance. It's it's very uh, well done. Um, one one that I sort of just uh, mention, talk a bit more, a little bit more about, if you can, is trauma insurance. Tell us about um, how that sort of works. Yeah, so trauma insurance got its um, got its start back in South Africa. So way, oh, I'm going to say in the 80s, but I, 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 I could be wrong there. And, and how it sort of developed is that um, these doctors who were you know sort of um, world leaders in relation to um, heart surgery, um, they were finding that you know the uh, people that they were operating on were surviving but the, the downside of that is was all these additional costs that they were incurring and the life insurance wasn't paying out because they weren't dying they were surviving so the the trauma really came out of uh, out of that and uh, a recognition of the fact that you know some significant and serious events do occur to people doesn't necessarily result in a life insurance claim or a total and permanent disability claim, so it's more the living insurance. So trauma cover comes out of that. So it's it's the one that's arguably the, um, you know, if I talk to people, the, the cover that people normally wouldn't have would be the trauma cover or critical illness, probably because it's not it's not particularly well you know well known. But you know the, the simplest way to think about it, and I, I spoke about those you know four or five. You know, you know, major illnesses earlier. So your cancers, your heart attacks, your strokes, your MS. You know, there's a whole host of different um, illnesses that are covered under a trauma insurance policy. 
the most important thing to be aware of is you know that normally at the back of your product disclosure statement it, it lists the um, it lists the criteria or at least the, the the definition so it'll say this is what malignant cancer is this is what a heart attack means etc so it, it's really important to have a policy that uses up-to-date medical definitions and during the royal commission and, and a little bit earlier and that was a there was a, a few insurers um, you know pulled up on the fact that they were using out-of-date medical definitions um, which is they're making it harder to claim um, and, and absolutely I, I think if you've you know, if you are diagnosed with a heart attack, realistically, you should be assessed under the current methodology for diagnosing a heart attack, not not methodology that was you know ten or fifteen years out of date. Because mm. medical medical science and diagnostic techniques improve, so you know it's certainly I would hope out of the Royal Commission, a lot of these insurance companies will ensure that their um, definitions are current and are up to date. But um, you know, it's trauma covers one also that you can't have through superannuation. Um, pays out a lump sum. It is a tax-free lump sum as well. But, but obviously not tax-deductible, though. Correct. So the yeah. premium is not tax-deductible, but on the flip side, um, in the event you receive a claim, you know, there's no tax on that either. Mm. Now, how you use that money is completely up to you. So um, if Tim had a heart attack yesterday, sorry, Tim, um, he survives 14 days, and then uh, shortly thereafter the um, claim is, is paid to his bank account, he doesn't... Well, you don't need to use that for... Um, Know, medical treatment, you can use it to pay for your mortgage, go on a holiday, take some time off work. Once you receive that money, it is completely up to you how you use it as well. Mm. So perhaps a little bit misunderstood there. Mm. I often get the question, well, do I really need all this cover if I've got health insurance? It's mm. like, well, health insurance doesn't pay you a lump sum benefit. Health mm. insurance will help with your with your hospital bills. Yeah. You know, as you might be you know you might have hospital cover or, or private health insurance but then still come out of hospital and have additional um, like you might have a gap to pay mm. that's where the trauma cover potentially could come in to, to help cover your gap payment so certainly you know health insurance is not a replacement for any other sort of insurance and probably equally those other types of insurance aren't a replacement for health insurance so yes the cost of insurance is going up we all know that we all see that every every year I'm the same um, it, it, and it doesn't make it easy um, you know, for people's budgets, because wages aren't necessarily going up, but their health costs um, are, are definitely going up. But you know, oftentimes people, when cash flow is an issue, the first thing they do is say, "Oh, yep, I'm going to cancel my life insurance or cancel my trauma cover." Arguably, they're the people that can probably least afford to cancel it because if something do, does go wrong, they've got nothing to fall back on. Yeah. So Good my philosophy is more: look, <coughs> rather than cancel cover. Keep it, but maybe try and reduce the sum insured to reduce the premium so you can at least keep something because something is a lot better than having nothing. Mm. Yeah, so <coughs> 2019, where we are now, do you think this year's going quick for you? Is it Absolutely, Tim. Yep, I just look back and I've got a teenager in the house now, which just blows my mind. So he turned 13 in February, so uh, I do not know where the last 13 years have gone. Is this guy a prof- is he a professional chess player? This guy? <laughs> professional Xbox player? No, no, no. He, he, <laughs> no, he, he, he's actually he's, he's a really good kid. So uh, I've got two, uh, a boy and a girl. Um, he had, you know, but my, my son definitely um, enjoys his chess. So um, he, he's he's got that um, you know he's got that um, analytical mathematical um, science brain, which is and, and it's great that his school encourages that sort of thing as well and. Um, you know, there, there's lots of boys and girls out there that um, in the school system that are playing chess, and there's some absolute guns out there as well. But 
Yeah, as I say to him, it's all about balance. He can't just do chess. He can't just do his sporting activities. He needs to find that right balance so he can you know, enjoy his chess, enjoy his sport, do whatever he needs to do for school, and also have a bit of time, you know, for you know, just a bit of rest and relaxation. What sort of sport do they do they get up to? Uh, at the moment, he's playing cricket. Um, and he's also um, hockey season starting soon, so field hockey. So he yeah. um, he started hockey a couple of years ago, um, and he, he's he's really taken to that. So really enjoys his hockey and his cricket. So it certainly keeps him busy. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, <clears throat> so Brian, yeah. So where do you see your your business going in the future? I mean, what do you what do you sort of looking? What what is there sort of an end? Um, is there an end sort of goal? I guess. For what you're wanting to do in business? Yeah, not not really. I mean, I, I, I say to clients all the time that I, I you know, I, I, I've never wanted to be, you know, the biggest financial planning firm in the world. I want to be in a situation where, if a client calls me, they get to speak to me. Yep. Um, so I, I wanted to. So that's what I like about the way you set up. You know, you're, you're, yeah. you're very available. You're that's right. fairly proactive. You're. You know, you return and respond to inquiries very quickly. Yeah, and look, I mean, well, while you know, sometimes you know, you you, you get caught up, and you know, it might take you a little bit longer than normal to, to respond to things. But ultimately, I, I just want to be in that situation where if someone wants to talk to me, they get to talk to me. You know, I don't want to be in a situation where I'm you know farming them off to you know to junior financial planners or anything like that. And, and while it would certainly be nice, you know, to have some assistance from time to time, um, you know, realistically, I'm sort of. You know, comfortable enough with the current arrangements myself and an, and an admin staff, um, and you know just being available for the clients, you know when they want to um, talk to me. But you know, looking a little bit further afield, you know some of the things that came out of the Royal Commission about the you know fee for no service and, and things like that, it's mm. it, it, there's going to have to be additional focus from licensee compliance teams about how many people can a financial planner actually service because if they're paying you a fee you know they need to get the service so if you've got a thousand clients terrible example you've got a thousand clients who are paying you a fee how are you going to be able to you know, give them the service that they're paying for so some of those really big um, older or more mature businesses might actually struggle under some of the you know some of the new changes that are coming in because um, are they doing the right thing in relation to ongoing service from clients so if I get to the stage where, where you know I can't talk to my existing clients. Well, that's an opportunity to say, you know what, I'm taking on too much business, and something needs to something needs to change. But um, I'm certainly not at that that, ca- that stage at the moment. But um, you know, there's a lot of changes that is going to be coming up. A lot of renewed focus from regulators and our internal compliance team. And already, I was at some training last week, and there's some massive changes that are that are that I need to implement effectively from today in relation to. You know the the meetings I have with clients, so it's you know we have to take much so more like a procedure, meeting procedure, or just the things we need to cover. So if we go back to the insurance side of things, so in the past someone would come in and explain the situation, and then the you know effectively then as the advisor, as the professional, I'd recommend the the cover that they need. But you know the, the feedback we're getting now is that you need to you know, spend more time on some of the additional features and benefits of policies and finding out from clients if there are value to them. Are they willing to pay more for them? So that when you make the recommendation, you can then link that back and say, "Well, um, terrible example. You said that you know you wanted a policy that would keep pace with inflation. So we've obviously then made a recommendation about a policy that's got indexation. So it's just, I, I, I just think there's going to be more time taken up from some of these meetings, which initially will probably uh, most advisors will struggle with. 
But on the flip side, I think that if it's done well, we'll actually have more engaged, more educated clients, and that's 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 what we want. We want people to be engaged. We want people to be educated. We want people to take an active interest in their super or mm. their insurance or their or their investment. So I can absolutely see um, where the regulator is coming from, despite the fact it might take us a bit of time um, initially to get used to some of these um, some of these new processes. But yep. ultimately, though, anything that we can do that means clients have more information and they can make informed choice make informed choices um, is an absolute must and uh, completely and wholeheartedly support. So technology, uh, does that play a huge role in, in a, a small financial planning practice like yours? You have to continually keep up to date with technology or you, you found challenges in this area? Yeah, I mean, we, we do have, we, we do use technology to, to some extent. I mean, um, with the licensee, all of our files now need to be kept um, in a central online um, storage system. Which is multiple backups and all that sort of stuff in place, um, and, and that, that's just to make sure that you know if something comes up, the the, the licensee's got access to all the files. Um, so that that's certainly you know uh, I mean if I take a step back, you know when I set my business up, I'd always set it up with a view of, of being um, you know electronic rather than sort of having paper-based files. And while we need to create the paper initially. I just didn't want to be in a situation where we've got you know thousand um, files out the back, um, maybe like some accounting firms. I don't know, <laughs> but you know, but I, but I had that ability to set the, the business up so we're going to be electronic. So that, that's certainly been one good thing. Um, we, you know, like everyone else, you, you, you scan things, you use mobile phones, and you know, there's there's probably clients that um, you know that you know the, 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 you know I've got clients that live in Canberra, I've got clients that live in Perth, and um, you know, we can have all the discussions that we need to have now using the likes of Skype or using emails or even using the mobile phone. So certainly for remote clients, embracing technology makes servicing them a whole lot easier. Mm. And I'm more than happy to, you know, to use that if a client wants it. So not everyone wants to, be, wants to come into the office, which is fine. So, you know, trying to figure out other ways that we can, you know, communicate with them mm. um, you know, works out really well. Yeah, so... <clears throat> So that's a, a bit about um, technology, how that's sort of how you're sort of dealing with that at the moment. Um, the Royal Commission, we sort of led, and there's been a, a little bit on on that, but obviously that's that's affecting quite a lot of people in this finance industry, including planners, banks. Um, we've seen. Who do you think? Um, what do you think of the announcement that was made? I'm, I'm this, I just wanted to get your sort of opinion on this uh, initially by by Hain about you know the way. Like mortgage brokers get remunerated, they shouldn't be getting trailing commissions, and and then all and then the bankers come out, you know, more recently and said, no, we want to look after to mortgage brokers. What, what do you think about that whole approach? I must say, you know, I, I was a pretty avid follower um, of the Royal Commission, um, you know, hearings as are being held. So when I, I mean, I'm a bit of a nerd. When you know, <laughs> that, that afternoon when the report was released, I downloaded it straight away and started having a read through it and. I was initially quite shocked that all the yields in the banking world appeared to be placed on the heads of mortgage brokers. Um, after reading that, I was in contact with a client who's also a mortgage broker. I could just hear in his voice, he was just absolutely devastated, just going, look, you know, he's got this business, he's got a great business, um, and potentially, with, with a stroke of a pen, effectively, it was, it was going to be next to worthless. Um, but I, 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 you know... I think part of what was missed in all of this is that 
you know, there was the commentary that, you know, people that see mortgage brokers take on higher levels of debt or have higher servicing ratios. Fair enough, I, I can't dispute that. But ultimately, it's still the banks that approve the loans. So the mortgage broker's not approving the loans. They're submitting the loan to the bank. So if the bank wasn't happy with the level of debt or the level of servicing, you know, why could the bank not either say, well, we're not going to lend you a million dollars, we're only prepared to lend you $900,000 or $800,000 because of the serviceability. So it seemed that there was a whole lot of um, negative commentary around the work the mortgage brokers do. But I know with my mortgage broker, um, he, I've chatted to him a few times and he's you know spoken to our bank um, and he's got um, rate reductions for me. Um, we've got a fixed loan maturing in a couple of months and I spoke to him, he's already, I mean, Back in the day, he had that diary, so you know he does do work for us on an ongoing basis. And look, there might be mortgage brokers that don't do that, but my experience with him is that he absolutely does. You know, um, you know, he, he he does the right thing by clients. He you know he you know, doesn't um, you know fill out application forms with incorrect information, and he also makes sure that you know people are happy with the loans as well because he wants to keep them as clients. Um, he doesn't want to see them see someone dissatisfied with him and then they go somewhere else mm. um, but sort of getting back to the original question I mean the, the, the value the mortgage brokers have is you know it, it's competition there's a lot of smaller banks out there that you know don't have branch networks um, but they use mortgage brokers um, and you know if you're going to go and do your loan by yourself does that mean you're going to have to go and you know speak to CBA speak to NAB speak to ANZ um, speak to Suncorp speak to AMP speak to Bank of Queensland who's really going to have the time to go and have you know six one to two hour meetings with those banks to see yeah, if well. you're potentially going to qualify for a loan whereas that's the whole point of the mortgage broker so I'm, I'm glad that the current government has come out to say that they're not going to make any changes. I believe if there is a change in government, um, the ALP is looking to retain the initial commission but maybe get rid of the trailing commission. So maybe not necessarily ideal, but probably still a better outcome than, mm. than what was originally proposed. But obviously, I mean, the argument you're seeing from some parties is, you know, it should just change to a fee-for-service model. Yeah. Um, so that, and obviously you, we we know that what the benefits you know benefits are of of mortgage brokers. Um, I I for one myself I, I think mortgage brokers are, are great. Uh, the good ones are really good. They obviously can can make sure that uh, the best deals obtained for the client and something that's going to work. Um, but as, as and as a professional, I'm always happy to pay a fee for that type of service and say, look, you charge me the fee and I'll and I'll pay it sort of thing. Yeah. The mentality of most Australians isn't that way, though. That's right, and and, and and there's also sort of parallels with financial planning. So back in the day, definitely, you, you know, it was always you know come into XYZ Bank, get your free financial plan, get your free financial plan, and you get a commission somewhere. That's right, but you know, there's still because that's how it was marketed. There's still a view out there that you know the advice that we give should still be free. So mm. well, we're in a different world. But going back to the mortgage brokers, the the, the issue that I've got with paying the fee and. You know, I've read some things that people think, you know, you pay the fee and then it should just be factored into the loan. So really, people are going to be taking out a higher loan. But to me, the real issue is, you know, a self-employed mortgage broker might have to charge, I mean, look, I'm just going to throw some numbers out here, might have to charge $3,000 to do a loan application. By the time I've sat down with a client, done all the running around, etc., etc. 
quite simply, the banks could say, yeah, that's all very well and good, but you know what? We're only going to charge $1,000. So who then is gonna, the, the, the client going to see? They're going to go and see a mortgage broker and pay three, or they're going to go and see a bank and pay one. Um, my other concern, yeah, yeah. my other concern is that the banks will then run their special offers oh, for a limited time only, um, no fee for our loans. Yeah. But you know, well, it's going to be a limited time that then becomes a permanent yeah. thing. Yeah. So that that that's my concern is that there's going to be this massive dry up of competition, mm. and I see it. Or I mean, I, I I see it talking to clients that have just taken out, um, taken out um, a, a new loan. When I talk about insurance, and they sit there and go, Brian, I understand what you're saying. Can't afford to, you know, to have this extra cost. So mm. all of a sudden, they've got to pay a extra fee for a for a loan. I don't know. I just can't see it. And it, you know, yeah, I suppose a, a terrible example. You think back. It wasn't that long ago when the current government proposed a five dollar fee to see to see a GP. How yep. well did that go? <laughs> People won't pay five bucks to see a GP. There's no way in the world they're going to pay a few thousand dollars to see a mortgage broker when they can go to the bank and get it a lot cheaper mm. and potentially for free. So mm. that was that's that's absolutely my concern about that particular change. And don't get me wrong. I mean, Commissioner Haynes obviously a very very smart guy, um, and his team was she was. Um, some of the um, some of the things you'd, you'd see and you read about, you know, uh, what um, you know, Ms. Orr and uh, and Commissioner Haynes' um, assistants did, it was you know, absolutely mind blowing how um, ruthless is probably not the right word, but how um, how focused they were able to drill down and set up some of these highly paid executives and just absolutely, you know, for want of a better description, actually smash them. But unfortunately, they got their legalistic view. And I don't necessarily think that some of the things, and I stress some of the things um, that they have recommended are necessarily going to be in the best interest of the client and the best interest of competition. Mm, because we, we want a competitive environment mm. because that's what keeps fees low mm. and that's what keeps, you know, mortgage, um, that's what keeps sorry, lenders honest. Mm. I guess one of my final points in this podcast today is what do you think the secrets are, if there are secrets, uh, to the financial planning industry? Um, getting more clients back in back you know getting advice from financial planners and and that type of thing because obviously you would have seen that you know the demand for financial planners doesn't sort of hasn't really increased much over the years Uh, what is there there any sort of secret to getting that back up a little bit more look I, i suppose you know potentially one of the unintended consequences of some of the things that have come out of the Royal Commission and some of the additional compliance framework, unfortunately, is going to mean that you know, the cost to give advice is going to increase. Yes. Um, yep. The downside of that is that uh, there's going to be a whole host of people that are probably in need of good advice Yes. that unfortunately won't be able to afford it. And, and that, I think, is you know something that's potentially being missed um, in all the discussions, I mean, don't, don't, seriously, don't get me wrong. I mean, you know, acting in the best interest of the client, absolutely no-brainer. You know, it probably should have come into law much sooner. Um, but there has to be a way to, you know, give the strategic advice advice to someone um, in a way that they can get that advice, but not cost them an arm and a leg. And I think that's that's sort of the quandary that we're in at the moment. Is that um, you know the, the the fees that we need to charge. Aren't conducive to, you know, someone you know maybe a lower socioeconomic bracket needing advice but not being able to afford advice. Um, I don't think there is. A, I don't think there's a 
uh, a quick fix to that one. Um, it's you know something that the regulators and the bodies need to be able to figure out because otherwise there's going to be people that um, you know, are probably going to be in a worse position because they haven't got the advice to do the things that they need to do or take the steps that they need, that they need to take. Yeah. So, um, but in terms of you know the, the best things to do, look, I, I'd say the best thing to do um, is go and go and talk to a financial planner. Yes, they might charge you a fee for the initial meeting, and that's sort of getting away from that that concept years ago where the advice had to be free. So, mm-hmm. you know, that, that that sort of more fee for service type arrangement, um, and then you know, have a chat to them about what they think they might be able to do for you and then if you sit there and go you know what what they're proposing sounds good to me and I can see the value then engage them yeah um, but um, you know I, I'd be more inclined to seek advice sooner rather than later the the risk of course is you keep delaying keep delaying then you're about to retire and then yeah. you find out there's steps you could have taken a few years ago mm. that might have had a material impact on your ability to retire comfortably so um, I've been inclined to yeah, seek advice sooner rather than later, and you know by all means chat to a few different financial planners. Although there might be different costs there, um, mm. but ultimately you'll. I mean, and I've had this before. There's, you know, as I said earlier, I, I don't want to be in a situation where I'm the biggest organisation in the world. But you know, if someone comes in and, and talks to me and and there's a bit of a meeting of the minds, we we think we can work together. Great, but you know, we also need to be prepared for the fact that we can't necessarily help everyone. Um, and sometimes you and a, a client may not necessarily gel. That's fine. I mean, you know, that's, there's certainly no issues there at all. But um, you know, taking the taking the steps to get the advice and you know, get it early would, would be the would be the best thing, I think. Yeah, definitely. And that's been great discussion. Um, now, you're an avid uh, cyclist. Um, you, how long have you been sort of? Do uh, you still doing at the moment? And in, in recent sort of times, are you sort of still getting out there and taking big? Uh, Cycling, yeah, I'd, I'd love to. I'd love to say yes. <laughs> uh, I, I've I've sort of transitioned a bit from road cycling to mountain bike riding over the last couple of years. So you have your own mountain bike? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like it's only a you know basic bottom of the line model, but it, but you know I'm not a I'm not a fanatic or anything, so it, it does the job. But I haven't been out there anywhere near. Um, I haven't been out there. I think since Christmas, which is pretty embarrassing. Um, yep. But you know, uh, full of excuses about why. But you know, ultimately, it just comes down to laziness, doesn't it? But um, whenever I do go out, I, I, I do really enjoy it, and then I kick myself for saying, you know, why don't I, uh, you know, keep up with it? But um, yeah, but the mountain biking is is a lot of fun, and yeah, it's certainly um, can be a bit daunting sometimes. But um, you just got to pick the trails that are within your capabilities, um, and then practice makes perfect, I suppose. Yeah, definitely. So, and have you seen these lime scooter things around the place? Have you? Yeah, I've seen a couple zooming around. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, they're certainly interesting. I know they had a couple of issues a little while ago, or a couple of weeks ago, with uh, some software malfunction causing people to come off. So that's certainly uh, uh, not good. Um, I haven't ridden one myself. Um, yeah, have you? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, no, I love them, but um, yeah, they sort of instead of riding bikes around, I've been using getting around on scooters here and there. But that's um, just, I think it's just the flavour of the month thing. I don't think you'll yeah. if you go in sort of around that city area, you just see that just 
they're just getting used all over the place. They're yeah. just footpaths and yeah. they're allowed on footpaths and all that sort of stuff. So it's just, it's fairly crazy, Brian, to be honest. But um, yeah, I think uh, any. I guess anything sort of further ha- happening that you'd sort of like uh, to inform the listeners about at all, Brian, before we wrap things up? Yeah, look, I, 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 I could go on a lot about some of the Royal Commission things and, yeah. some, and some of the things you'll miss. Very, but, but very we, passionate about uh, reading it, as you said. That's right. But we'll probably want, that, that, that might take up another half an hour. But you know, we, so we won't, um, we won't go on too much about that. So for us to say, I think that the Royal Commission, unfortunately, did miss a couple of things, which is, you know... I don't, know, I don't know if that's because of the lack of time that he had to uh, prepare his report, but um, you know, it, it is what it is, I suppose. Um, but look, I suppose the, the the one really important thing to take out of the discussion is that you know people need advice, be it taxation advice, financial planning advice, or whatever the case may be. Um, you know, by and large, the vast majority of people that I've you know, professional people that I've spoken to, like accountants, mortgage brokers, you know, they're all trying to do the same thing, trying to do the right thing by their client um, and generally have an interest in making sure that you know, the client is in a substantially better position than when they started. Um, and despite the fact that there's going to be all this additional um, regulation required, it, it still comes down to if we didn't have good relationships with our clients, if we weren't doing the right thing by our clients, we wouldn't have businesses. Mm. Um, you know... I, I, you know, in, in my world, when markets are misbehaving, you sit there and, you know, you can lament, you know, you've set up good portfolios, but they're down because markets are down. But ultimately, you know, it, it's not about that. It's about the relationships that I have with clients. I, I genuinely enjoy dealing with my clients. You know, I've got some absolutely um, wonderful clients from all different walks of life, and we have some... Um, you know, crazy discussion sometimes about um, about different things and things that are going on in their lives. But you know, th- that's the really enjoyable thing. That's the satisfaction that I get out of this job is talking to people um, and seeing them, um, you know, taking the advice, implementing the advice, and being better off in the end. Yeah, and Brisbane. I mean, obviously, you, you love this part of the world. You like sort of operating your business from here. Yeah, most of your, most of your clients in this area, or yeah, look, I've, I've, they're probably spread out a bit throughout Brisbane, um, but um, but mainly in Brisbane. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So I've got a couple in you know Canberra and in, in, in Perth and, yep. and, and various other places, but they're you know you'd probably be thinking maybe ninety five percent would be in Brisbane. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I've, I've, do you do much in the way of networking, Brian, at the moment? Or? No, not really, Tim. I've sort of, um, you know, my, my, my wife has, um, she used to have her own business. Um, so she sold that a couple of years ago. Now she works with... Um, was I'm that here. the Doodle one? That was Doodle, yeah, that, that, yeah. that's right. Yeah, that, was, that was a great business for her. Um, did, a, did a great job. And then she sold that and she's now working at um, the University of Queensland. So... Um, because she's working full time and I'm working full time, there's just a bit of, you know, yeah, things come up during the day in terms of busy enough get, getting kids to school. That, 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 that's right. So sometimes the early morning networking things don't work because you know, um, kids go in different directions to get to school. Um, yeah. So the long and the short. No, I haven't done much in the way of networking, Tim. No. That's okay. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast, Brian. It's been a pleasure. I think it's been very informative for the listeners. I'm glad you Kate decided to come along. Uh, so thank you very much uh, for your time today and uh, no doubt we'll catch up again around our office here very soon sounds good now Tim just before you finish I I was talking to my daughter about 
what I was doing this morning, and um, she'll be devastated if I don't mention her name. <laughs> I won't mention so, her name. So, quick shout out to Jasmine. <laughs> Hello, Jasmine. Hope you listen. And there you go. I mentioned your name, and so she'll be happy now. So yeah. she'll be she devastated if she listens to this, and she hears a brother's name a few times. But there you go. Yeah. I mentioned her name, so she's all good. <laughs> okay. And what what does what does she do for, as a hobby? Uh, she really loves dancing. Dancing. So, um, That's great. Hip hop yeah. and acro. She absolutely loves it. So. Um, yeah, she's a you know, you know different child to to her brother. Brought up exactly the same, but um, you know, it's just simple things like when you see her running compared to him. Um, you know, she looks like a graceful, natural athlete. She looks like a gazelle. Um, <laughs> she yeah, so she's certainly got um, you know the, the athletic genes in the body. But um, yeah, but she's getting back into chess now as well, which is which is great. So we've yep. always said to her. You know, to do something physical and something w- with her mind. So she's 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 done piano and she's done violin, and now she's back into chess. So you know, which is great to see. And I mean, you know, I'm very much involved in the chess community in Queensland. I'm the treasurer of the Chess Association of Queensland now. Um, but one thing that I think that chess around the country needs to work on is getting more girls involved. Yeah, um, I was actually, no, actually talking to a couple of people a couple about a week or so ago. They've that's how I think they're really good at chess. So it's, it's quite interesting who yeah. you meet and what the what they sort of um, you know their hobbies are. But you know, it's it, chess is one of those things. You know, it's anyway. We could talk about things for all day. We we, we, we could. That's right. Yeah. But, but thanks for having me, Tim. I really appreciate it. That's been the from the Valley Podcast uh, episode thirty two. Brian Moss from Money Box Financial Planning. Thank you very much. Thanks, Tim.